Welcome to Star Trek Story, Myth, and Arcs podcast. It's five-year mission to explore Star Trek arcs and themes, seek out new story directions, and boldly tell stories that no one has told before. Hailing frequencies open, sir. All right, welcome to Star Trek Story, Myth, and Arcs podcast. This is a special crossover episode with one of my favorite Star Trek podcasts. And that's not a little thing because there are a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there. Uh, But uh, Trekking Through Space and Time is one of my favorites. And I have the hosts HT, Y. Trambui, and Jacob Hall joining me today. Starting with HT, why don't you tell us like how you got into podcasting about Star Trek and Doctor Who? So sorry to be this person, David, but it's trekking through time and space, but okay. it's okay. No, no. You, have <laughs> Any- to. you have to do that. <laughs> Anyways, yes, I have been a fan of Doctor Who for a little more than a decade now. I got into it right before going into college and right when it was on the cusp of exploding in the U.S. and internationally uh, with season five and season six of Doctor Who in the Revive series. And I watched all the way from the beginning of the Revive series and just kind of fell in love with that show and how it brings that sort of emotional humanist uh, element to sci-fi and with a wacky, goofy camp factor as well. And um, I've been a a hardcore fan ever since, uh, as you can see by my, I I don't know if your listeners will be able to see this, but um, I I have a TARDIS backpack and a little Dalek alarm clock in the back. And Star Trek was something that I'd always been curious about. I'd seen the Star Trek movies um, and wanted to get to dive into it, was always a little intimidated by just the grand scale of the franchise so at one point Jacob and I uh, who are we're co-workers at Slash Film and we were talking about Doctor Who and Star Trek and realizing the similarities that these two shows share um, me as a Doctor Who fan Jacob as a Star Trek fan and decided to launch this podcast out of that yeah and I kind of buried the lead a little bit there's two things one is that you hatched this idea here in San Diego I believe at Comic-Con. we did Yes. And um, two is that you guys know each other. And the reason why I, I'm familiar with your work is that you're two of my favorite film critics as a part of Slash Film Daily, the podcast, which is my favorite film podcast. So you guys um, write professionally about movies. And so Jacob, maybe you could tell us a little bit also about how you got into writing about movies as well. Yeah, I went to school, studied film, realized I was very bad at making movies and sort of fell into writing about movies instead uh, as a background career just out of college and uh, it backslid into being a full on career. Now I'm editor editor at Slash Film and it's been one of those very strange trips. I did not see that coming, but it doesn't make sense because, you know, I've been I've been watching stuff like this my entire life. I mean, I'll go back to Star Trek, my mom raised me on star trek i my memories of star trek are the dozens of vhs tapes with my mom's terrible doctor's handwriting uh with next gen episode titles written on them i mean everybody has their favorite childhood vhs mine was the best of both worlds parts one and two with commercials from the 1980s uh uh that I'd pop in uh you know at least once a week growing up and so when ht and i we're at Comic-Con and she was watching the first trailer for Picard. And I had a, a, an overload where I tried to explain to her, oh, this is what a Borg cube is. And HG had to tell me, I think I'd rather watch this. And I said, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's do it. So, 
so it took a little while it took a pandemic for us to find the time to um carve out what the voice of the show would be but uh that's what that's what, what trekking through time and space came from is me realizing it's time to tackle doctor who and professionally it's it's better for me to know what this is and it's been a weird strange trip and even though it's not a slash film project uh so many people have followed us from the slash film community and, and are either watching star trek and doctor who for the first time along with us or our old fans who are sending us helpful emails uh, about uh trek technology that we don't understand which has been awesome uh, it's my favorite email is when somebody says here's how the transporter actually works or here's uh why uh kirk trying to get rid of the the sabotaged phaser and conscience of the king didn't destroy the enterprise uh, so those have been the best uh emails and it's been incredibly rewarding so far and now we're here on this podcast i think that's the that's when you know your podcast is a podcast is when you're on another podcast <laughs> right well and since best of both worlds is such a big thing for you i, I don't in my last episode my interview with bron and braga he actually said that his first job at star trek was when he came in as an intern and Michael Pillar handed him the script to Best of Both Worlds and said, maybe you can help me figure out how to defeat the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> and that was his first moment working at Star Trek, which is just mind blowing to think about, but um, which I just, I love that story. But HD, how did you get into writing about film? Oh, well, I studied journalism actually uh, in college and had always had an intense love for film and storytelling. I did a lot of like, entertainment and film uh, reporting back when I was in high school and college as well. And it kind of just became a natural course for me. Uh, and um, I mitered in film studies in school and basically had from the beginning of college decided I wanted to write about movies and wanted to just spend my time watching movies and sharing in my love for movies and TV. And I I kind of have a suspicion that it was because I love popcorn so much. So I was just like, oh yeah, I can go see movies and eat popcorn for a living, which is a very basic way of saying that, um, yeah, I just love that theatrical experience and uh, sharing in that that communal uh, experience of, of movies. Well, and you guys, that's one of the things that interested me is because I, always call it writer brain that when I'm watching an episode of TV or a movie, like a lot of times I can't turn off the editorial writer part of my brain. And if a movie is bad or an episode is bad and we know there's a few, few bad episodes of Star Trek. Okay. There's, 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 there's a lot, especially in season three of the original series, but I automatically start rewriting them in my head. So part of my interest was wondering what it's like as a film critic, to to sit down and watch a film or a piece of work and and because i think for film critics it's just as important to writers to to identify the arcs of the story um and either one of you guys can answer that <laughs> right i think for me there's like there's no objective checklist for uh whether a script whether a movie or tv sh episode works it's just does it emotionally compel me does it uh bring a process message in a way that feels emotionally satisfying and emotionally compelling. And if it does that successfully, then I can look at the, the technical details and I can look at the, the performances and how that brings it all together. But for me, it's really about that emotional connection that I feel with a story, uh, whether it's on in a film or in a TV episode. But let's, let's talk about the, the main thing that I wanted to do today was to talk about that first season of Star Trek and 
the whole like idea of this was coming from nothing. This, this, you know, um, I always try to remind people that when they watch Star Wars A New Hope, that to remember just how weird it was that George Lucas was dropping these things in the world and not explaining them, you know. And Star Trek was doing a lot of the same things. And the very first invention of Star Trek was the original pilot, The Cage. And some interesting factoid about The Cage is that Gene Roddenberry, when he took it around, he um, actually was showing it at science fiction conventions on a black and white 16 millimeter print. And in fact, one of the first times he ever screened The Cage in public was at the same uh, world science fiction convention that Dune won best novel of the Hugos tied in 1966 with the terrible This is Immortal by Roger Zelazny, which I'll never understand how that book won, uh, co-won with Dune, but whatever. So I just point that out to say that there is a shared history there. But Roddenberry started with um, a, a, a outline that had 25 script ideas and that outline was called Star Trek Is. I'm wondering, especially HT, because this is new to you. You know, Jacob and I have been steeped in this forever. In 2020, what's it like watching Star Trek for the first time? Well, I did know from pop culture osmosis what Gene Roddenberry's vision for Star Trek was going to be, uh, that progressive vision of the future, uh, the UN essentially. That was something that had I was aware of because of just people around me who were fans and because of the general pop culture knowledge around it. And um, that this is like a, a diplomatic, um, peaceful vision of the future. And um, going into the original series, which I admit I was I was a little nervous about because it is from an, a different time. And I was worried whether the special effects, whether the performances, whether the stories would hold up. And they really do. And I think looking at it as both a an artifact of the times and as just good storytelling, it really works. Um, because and I like to I like to be able to examine a show, especially from both of those elements and which we do a lot on trekking through time and space uh which makes it even more of a fascinating watch i think than just watching something um that uh devoid of like that cultural context in which it came about so i think that it, it i think it too also helps that i came into it having watched quite a bit of twilight zone and seeing some of the the seeds uh or like the inspiration influence perhaps that twilight zone had on uh, Star Trek and maybe that wider um, acceptance, audience acceptance of more high concept sci-fi uh, stories that Twilight Zone started to tell and Star Trek started to expand upon. Mm -hmm. And different from Jacob, who like me, you know, saw these very young. I think one of the things that I like about your show is that you're getting Jacob who's steeped in Star Trek and then you who are new to it and vice versa with the Doctor Who. It makes it um, just really fun podcast. For me, I'm not rewatching anything because I've seen them all. <laughs> um, I'm just listening and looking forward to the episodes because I, you know, I don't need to be reminded what Dagger of the Mind is like, um, <laughs> you know, or Conscious of the King. I've seen it enough times. Every once in a while, you guys bring up something that I'm like, oh, I didn't remember that they said space service um, at that point or you know and so there are there are things but um, but certainly 
um, I think that the the combined nature of a, a newbie with somebody who's who's a veteran is 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 what makes it really fun. I wanted your reaction to something from the Star Trek is proposal that went around, and this was what Gene Roddenberry sold Nevercon. A lot of people don't remember. A lot of people think that this was Gene Roddenberry's first show, but he was a showrunner on a cop drama called The Lieutenant which is how he met Leonard Nimoy, who was a guest star on The Lieutenant. And not only that, DC Fontana, Dorothy Fontana, who is one of the most important writers of Star Trek and Gene Kuhn all had written scripts for The Lieutenant. So he was working on The Lieutenant um, and he got that gig because Roddenberry actually was a police officer for a short period of time. And so he turned that into like, hey, I'm, I have some experience so I could write this show. And then, um, so on, in this proposal, he said, Star Trek is a one hour dramatic television series, action, science fiction, the first such concept with a strong central lead character plus other continuing regulars. He saw this as a drama, an action adventure, but he wanted to make sure this was not, because remember the only other real space show that was on around that time was Lost in Space, which was very directed towards kids. I, I really like that he was focusing on the characters from the very beginning. Do you feel like th that that was obvious even to the pilot? Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of, I'll make a very bold comparison here, but I just finished reading a really excellent book called Space Odyssey about the making of 2001 Space Odyssey. And it's very brutally honest and upfront about the entire process. And one thing that Kubrick did when he set up to make that movie was he sat down with R.C. Clark, the writer, and said, I want to make the first good science fiction movie. <laughs> and you can argue whether or not that's a, uh, a conceded statement or one that's accurate. Uh, but I think what Roddenberry is writing here and that, that suggestion seems to be like, I want to make the first good science fiction TV show. And I think that actually could be an accurate statement. And, and it's because character is there first and foremost. I mean, even from the pilot, there may be... Uh, changes here and there but especially in um where no man has gone before the actual first aired pilot kirk is kirk and spock is spock and the performances may change and the relationships may deepen and the show's memory may evolve so that certain things get picked up and expanded upon uh but there is a sincere amount of thought into who these people are so that even when things change i mean the united space earth probe agency or something like that is what they call is what they call um kirk's boss at some point uh, so even though we don't know Starfleet or Federation yet, the things that matter, the things that linger and give the foundation that let's Trek be Trek are there. And that to me is why the show lasts and why it's so important. Well, and one thing that's really cool about the way Star Trek develops between the first outline, the pilot, and when um, when they rejected the cage as being too cerebral, right? Because that's what the network said. It was too cerebral. Um, he went back and rewrote the Bible, the second pilot with DC Fontana. And a lot of people don't realize that DC Fontana had this role. She sat in the room with him. Well, he, and she was, and the funny thing is, and this is how TV works at the time and the sexism of the era, she was his secretary. That was her role. And she mentions, and I, I think I sent you guys a link to this interview with DC Fontana. Fontana, and she mentions that um, the only way to get these jobs in Hollywood was to take these secretarial jobs, and she was having to do all the typing and the work during the day and go home and write her scripts at night, 
And, some, and she created the pen name DC Fontana because when she put Dorothy Fontana, she was getting rejections. And when she ungendered her name, she was consistently selling scripts for Westerns here, here and there, there, you know. Yeah, this is a thing that we talk about in the podcast often whenever we get to one of her episodes is that it's remarkable how consistent her work is. I mean, yeah. uh, Gene Kuhn, one of the other major writers from, from the early seasons, uh, his work can be really hit and miss, whereas Fontana's work is consistently strong and leads to some really great episodes, even where she's not credited yet. I mean, we've recorded an episode about uh, the legendary City on the Edge of Forever. It hasn't aired yet, but we recorded it. Mm-hmm. And people forget that she drastically rewrote Har- Harlan Ellison's script, and Ellison's a genius, but like so much of the great early Trek is Rodden- is Roddenberry, but it's also DC Fontana. Um, quietly in the background and making everybody else around her better yeah and she's so heavily involved in um vulcan culture right and she played that role of rewriting she wrote many um legends in the science fiction field theodore sturgeon um who created a muck time but didn't really understand Vulcan culture so dc dc fontana was the one that came in and kind of created those things which we're seeing the repercussions of and seeing the 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 style of in last week's discovery episode, you know, the the impact of DC Fontana, who by the way said Deep Space Nine was her favorite track. Um she's a very smart lady. Very Let's smart. just say. Yes. <laughs> and she did play a role in, in this um in the drafting between the first and second, even from the Star Trek is outline. Uh, much has changed by the time of the pilot. Um, but some of this stuff has become canon. Um, in fact, the ship was originally called the Yorktown on the first um, uh, Star Trek is outline. I'm glad that is not the name um, uh, that we eventually got. And But Captain Robert April was the first, um, as in canon, he is the first captain of the Enterprise. He was also the first name that Roddenberry used in this outline. Now, HD, I know you're a huge Spock fan. You might be interested to know how Spock was described in the Star Trek is um, outline. I would be interested. I'm so curious about this. Uh, Roddenberry explained him as potentially frightening with a heavy lidded somewhat, quote, satanic face and a reddish hue and pointed ears. He might have been half Martian. <laughs> um, that was the first mention of Spock <laughs> in Star Trek is. Um, yeah, I'm glad we didn't get that Spock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. probably would have, uh, Leonard Nimoy would probably have had to sit even longer hours in the makeup chair if he had to be a reddish hue the entire time. Although that finally explains that satanic dig that Kirk makes at one point in one of the... Um, the caps at the end of the episode and we were talking about this jacob and we're like why does he why are they talking about like he looks like satan he doesn't look there are a few episodes where kirk makes fun of spock for looking satanic including in a a cat's paw which which we just watched uh which was you know the halloween episode so it maybe it makes a little more sense there but yeah um i think dialing back the satanic look of spock uh is maybe one of the most quietly important pop culture choices of all time yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, and a lot of the traits that we would eventually come to know from Spock and from, from Vulcan were originally given to number one. 
even in the pilot, but in the um, especially in the Star Trek is the way uh, number one is mentioned um, from the very beginning. A strong female lead was was something that he had written into the pilot. Now the producers of the show have have the other producers like um, Robert Justman and a few others have been very clear in the years afterwards that they did not reject number one as because she was female. Um, and they did not reject the idea of the first officer being a woman. The, the reason why was because um, Major Barrett was Roddenberry's girlfriend and they were afraid to cast his girlfriend. Um, they may claim that. I'm not sure I buy that. Just knowing I heard, the it, I heard it was also test audiences didn't react well to her character too, mostly because, because of the fact that she was a woman. So I bet, I I'm guessing that's all hearsay. Yeah, but it's interesting to note that this strong female lead was always a part and the first officer was was a part of it from the very beginning yeah she's great uh i hg and i gushed about her on on our menagerie episode uh she leaves a very very strong impression and as much as i love uhura the, the original series never really finds a female character who has that direct command and strength again yeah, yeah i Absolutely love number one. Um, and I was especially, be and I was so, I guess, surprised at her being such a fully formed and assertive and um, unique female character because of how in the early episodes of Trek, it was, there weren't many, even Uhura was mostly background and um, it was, it wasn't great for, for the depictions of women. Yeah, and Uhura does get her day in the movies, definitely. She's a better character um, by that time. Um, but you'll see that they did have scripts um, written for Uhura that um, just never got made, but they definitely, and we'll get to that, because um, there's one that in particular that's fascinating. Um, but this Star Trek is outline came with 25 story ideas by Gene Roddenberry. You can look them up on memory alpha um because they're all there and it's amazing how many episodes even if the concept that he outlined in two or three sentences um became altered or changed um but it's interesting how many episodes even as far as the next generation came from this original 25 um, and, and there are several of them, but some are obviously really direct. Uh, for example, there's one called The Day Charlie Became God, which, of course, became Charlie X, which was DC Fontana's first assignment. Um, she had the pick of the litter because uh, Roddenberry said, pick one of these ideas and write it. And um, so while Roddenberry only directly wrote scripts for a few episodes, like The Menagerie, um, and the cage. Um, he still had his fingertips on the storylines all over the place, um, like the the day Charlie became God. But there's other ones too, and some of them are really really fascinating. Some of them didn't get made. Uh, one is an episode that he called President Capone, um, <laughs> which was uh, a parallel world episode set in a Chicago where Al Capone won the presidency which doesn't seem that weird right now after we just got through four years <laughs> Also, I feel like there's seeds of that in a season two episode HG has not seen yet called A Piece of the Action, but exactly. we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> and 
but what you can see with this document is that there are a lot of stories that they tried a couple times. Uh, George Clayton Johnson, who's who's known for writing The Man Trap, also wrote a treatment called Chicago Two, and so you could see that they were trying to develop these ideas like kind of over and over. Uh, one of the other things in the Star Trek is is um, document is that he highlights. Um, he says Star Trek is wagon train is Star Trek is a wagon train concept. We know that he said that famously. Built around characters who travel to similar worlds to our own. The parallel worlds concept is key. So the parallel worlds thing was the key all the way back there. One thing that's interesting also is that he mentions the Drake equation, which was a scientific theory trying to prove how many different kinds of, of life forms were out there. And um, just the fact that he mentions the Drake equation in there as a science nerd, who uh, earlier today interviewed his favorite astronomer on the planet, by the way, um, <laughs> for my podcast. Um, the fact that he mentioned the Drake equation in a Star Trek outline from 1965 just blows my mind, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, But it's cool to see that parallel worlds were such a, a high concept here. Um, I know you guys have done a few of those episodes, but you're going to get more into the parallel worlds as as Star Trek goes on. I mean, that's pure Star Trek finding a scientific reasoning to say, yes, we can use these Andy Griffith uh, show sets. There's, there's scientific backing for us to, to redress these. Right. And this <laughs> Abraham Lincoln costume that, uh, <laughs> which, um, and it's funny because the Savage Curtain, which is one of my least favorite uh, episodes in season three, um, you can see in this document that he has three different versions of like, um, you know, the crew meets Abraham Lincoln in a time vortex or whatever. And um, some of the other funny ones, there was one call. Oh, well, and I don't, I, I don't want to gloss over this really quickly. I want to mention George Clayton Johnson, because I actually got a chance to meet George Clayton Johnson at a convention. Um, he's most famous. He wrote the Man Trap episode, um, but he wrote several uh, episodes of the Twilight Zone. Famously, he wrote Kick the Can right uh which spielberg turned into the his part of the twilight zone movie and george clayton johnson and richard matheson were the two crossovers that worked for the twilight zone and for um for star trek so what what, what was interesting was that i got a chance to meet both him and matheson um a couple of times. Richard Matheson is the only time in my life that I've been so starstruck that I almost could not speak. Um, you and me both. I haven't met him yet, but I, I, I can't imagine what I would say to him. I mean, not to take us off on a tangent, but the one time I met Roger Corman, I literally could not speak and I embarrassed myself. So I, I, I feel your pain hardcore, David. And one of the things they they spoke, it was it was very cute. They were, um, I say cute, uh, because uh, we've lost Matheson actually, but um, I think we might have lost both of them, but in 2006 at the Bram Stoker Awards in LA, they did a talk about the Twilight Zone. And it was very cute because Richard Matheson fell asleep during pretty much any time he wasn't talking. Um, <laughs> and George Clayton Johnson um, was speaking about how they had a writer's group that met that's very famously called the California Sorcerers. And it was Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont, Ray Bradbury, uh, George Clayton Johnson, William F. Nolan, 
William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson, of course, wrote Logan's Run eventually. And George Clayton Johnson said that Gene Roddenberry and Rod Serling were both hanging around the California Sorcerers. They had a bar that they would go to um, and, you know, throw around ideas. And the concept of using the science fiction to do the political is something that they said that they all talked about all the time. And so it's amazing to me to, to ponder that Gene Roddenberry and Rod Serling may have been hanging out at this bar with the guy who wrote, I am legend, something wicked this way comes, Logan's run, uh, it, it, the list goes on and on and on. And it's- Murderer's row. Yes, it's a murderer's row. So when you, th when you think about these things, it's just, it's just amazing that these people were out there all together. So, um, one of the uh, other episodes that they that uh, Roddenberry had in his Star Trek is that never got made was an episode called Kentucky, Kentucky. And it's about an Earth colony and the serious group forced to reducing fighting Viking-like savages on the frontier. Savage Klingons eventually um, came in Errand of Mercy, but the first version of Klingons was in a proposed idea called Kentucky, Kentucky. I have no idea why Kentucky's involved, but now whenever I look at a map, I'm going to think of Klingons being from Kentucky. But uh, that's, I, I, I love something like this. I, I love that the evolution, like we can do an entire conversation about how the Klingons came to be and where they have gone. It's such a strain that to me is the miracle of, of star trek is that we have an idea called kentucky kentucky that leads to the creation of klingons who undergo a massive change between tv shows uh, uh by the time the movies roll around they look completely differently and to the point where later shows need to try to justify why they look different even though they don't need to but they do anyway right. to the point where later shows redesign them again and when people are mixed to that they have to double back and say oh they look different for this reason and so I, I i love this stuff this is one of the reasons why i love star trek so much is that the, the combination of uh both in the universe detail uh plus external drives tells its own story i mean watching a show react to its own history because it's been around for so long and it must is a remarkable thing and now you're right kentucky and klingons are now going to be intertwined in my brain Right. I wonder well, if, oh. I'm you. sorry, I should mention too that while he was not a California sorcerer, Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, who of course wrote Cat's Paw, the episode you guys just watched, uh, was a correspondent and stayed with those guys when he came to California. So his connection to the California sorcerers is one of the reasons why he ended up writing for, for Star Trek, um, oh. which is really interesting. And we'll get back to Robert Block because his episodes... And I, I, I was, it was funny, and I got to give you guys credit as Jacob specifically. But when I was listening to your episode about what little, what little girls are made of, I, I, in my brain said, I wonder if I'm going to have to email them to remind them to talk about Lovecraft, and they just <laughs> Lovecraft. And when Jacob, I was literally because I was walking to work listening to it, and when you mentioned Lovecraft, I literally pumped my fist in uh, appreciation that. Um, that you were on on top of that. So I, I have to give you a shout out for that. I mean, uh, Jacob is like the number one Lovecraft 
expert that I know of. So he, he would have to. He There's no way he would have missed it. <laughs> yeah, and we also delve into Lovecraft again when we get to the impossible planet with Doctor Who. So mm. uh, those tendrils, those, those tentacles from, from Lovecraft, problematic as he can be, run really deep and understanding him gives you a good perspective on lots of modern science fiction, Trek and Doctor Who included. All right, so how about the storyline that Gene Roddenberry tried to develop from the Star Trek is that was considered the darkest um, and he did one called A Question of Cannibalism. Oh, okay. <laughs> no question oh. about what it's about. Yes. Uh, the crew discovers colonists on Regulus are actually hurting sentient beings and face angry settlers trying to free the, quote, cattle. Um, the idea of the colonists um, destroying sentient beings, of course, eventually was developed into Devil in the Dark. Um, from from this, and there are uh, shades of that in in, in uh, discovery with with Saru. I feel like like I, I, ideas don't die. Yes, exactly. And um, um, Herb, uh, I think his name is Sol Solo. It's uh, S O L O W. He was a network executive. Said of this one, Gene's story premise would have to be have to be rewritten because it did not foreshadow an enjoyable night at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he also wrote, had an outline for an idea called The Mirror, where the Yorktown discovers a duplicate ship, and they have to decide whether or not to destroy their counterparts, which, of course, is the root of the Mirror Universe episode. Yeah, and also Yesterday's Enterprise from Next Gen. Sorry, HG, I keep talking about episodes that you have not seen yet. Oh, uh, but I'm yesterday's, yesterday's Enterprise is one of the all-timers. And also uh, Quentin Tarantino's favorite episode that he uh, wanted to turn into a Kelvin Universe movie yeah. um, uh, is Yesterday's Enterprise. He also had one called The Pet Shop um, with a world similar to St. Louis in 1910. They must have had a St. Louis script or set. <laughs> Except the women are masters and men are women's pets. Um, of course, the concept was revisited in the TNG episode Angel One, as well as uh, Roddenberry's 1974 pilot for the show Planet Earth, which got heavily remade into a show in the late 90s uh, that was not good. Um, and then there was one called Congo that I'm going to come back to later. Um, which because um, it's one that's very important to DeForest Kelly that never got made. Um, one of the things that I think is really cool in this document, too, is that um, uh, Gene Roddenberry was meeting with actual astrophysicists, right? And that's how you end up with planet names like Epsilon 4, Orion, Rigel. I mean, it, it doesn't really make sense that these planets would go by the names that we gave them, but okay. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and this was a result of the astrophysicists he was talking to. He was also trading letters with Isaac Asimov. But one of the best and most important decisions that I think Gene Roddenberry made, which was the influence of Rod Serling. Because remember, the success of the Twilight Zone came, and it's the reason why I think the new Twilight Zone is bullshit and why Jordan Peele, as talented as he is, missed the mark. And I did a whole episode about this and why the Twilight Zone works. Um, 
in the past is that Gene Roddenberry and Rod Serling both hired honest to goodness science fiction writers. Um, so what um, he did was he hired Richard Matheson, um, Charles Beaumont, um, for the and George Clayton Johnson for the Twilight Zone. And this influence happened with Gene Roddenberry, where Gene Roddenberry not only reached out to Asimov, didn't actually write any story concepts, but Gene Roddenberry was taking spec scripts and treatment outlines from some of the biggest names in science fiction, including, um, we know that several got made. Theodore Sturgeon had two episodes made, um, including A Monk of Time, Harlan Ellison, City on the Edge of Forever, and um, Norman Spinrad wrote The Doomsday Machine, which you haven't seen yet, HT. Um, oh, she has. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. We're, we're, we're a little we're, we're, far. We're, like you said, we record far ahead. Uh, okay. Spoiler alert, we're a fan of Doomsday Machine. <laughs> yes. And um, Norman Spinrad, who I interviewed for Dickhead's podcast, um, um, and HT, I know you're a big Le Guin fan. Um, Norman Spinrad. I am is also an, an anarchist science fiction writer um, uh, in addition to Le Guin. And, um, but anyways, um, he took um, all kinds of um, pitches and treatments from these science fiction writers, which, which we have copies of. So um, I wonder what you guys think about this influence of the actual science fiction writers on, on, the, on Star Trek. I mean, it certainly gives the show uh, an air of of validity. I mean, if you are a science fiction fan of the '60s, which I'm not, I'm <laughs> I am a born much after that. There's an idea that you know, if if the baseline for a spacefaring show is lost in space, which was never about ideas and was and always did punch low, and I know it has its fans. I I, I don't. I think it's a bad show. The fact that you get Matheson to do an episode, you have Ellison on an episode, it immediately raises the profile of we take this seriously. I mean, H. Chan discussed on the show before about how the great miracle of Leonard Nimoy's performance is that he takes Spock seriously. He at no point says Spock is a joke. And Leonard Nimoy, I'm sorry, but uh, Gene Roddenberry reaching out to these people, inviting them onto the show, giving them a voice, and bringing their concepts to life is him saying, I take science fiction seriously. Uh, this is not me. I do not see this as a kid's show. I do not see this as uh, an it's like it's like something frivolous. I understand this is a genre that hasn't gotten its due yet in many ways on the screen. And you know, I understand you, you men and occasionally women are the people who are the guardians of this. The people who hold the flag uh, uh, for all the people who enjoy this and want to be taken seriously. Uh, HTO, I'm curious if you. Uh, if you agree with this as somebody who's new to it, that's, that Star Trek seems to be taking science fiction more seriously than maybe its contemporaries. Yeah, and it's something I was almost a little surprised about because like, especially now knowing all the research that Roddenberry put into it and all the sci-fi writers that he hired. I mean, I knew of the writers, but um, there's always been a sort of um, delineation, I guess, between science fiction and sci-fi that, uh, that, sci-fi can be a, a better vision of sci of actual science and not always rooted in, in science. But I like that he was able to bring actual science into it. And I think it's also part of that product of its time in which this in the 60s, in which the space race was happening, people were taking a more uh, in, invested interest in uh, science than ever before on a like global scale. 
And I think it's helped make Star Trek so enduring as a franchise because it's not, it's something that takes that science aspect and that sci-fi aspect seriously. And there's been so many articles written about how Star Trek predicted this because they're taking that science seriously. So it's, it's part of what adds to that flavor of Star Trek and what makes it so enduring and so unique. No, HD, I know you were a huge fan of The Cage. What was it about The Cage and this first salvo that Gene Roddenberry put out into the world that worked for you? Uh, the network didn't pick it up, unfortunately, which is too bad. Well, now CBS All Access has picked it up um, in the longest pilot to TV show um, turnaround in the history of television. Um, but what was it about The Cage? I guess that it was because it was so ambitious and that the characters were already so fully formed right from the get-go, which is something that you'll see often in a pilot, but not always. And that really impressed me uh, with Pike and especially with number one. Even seeing Spock a little out of character wasn't too much of a jarring experience for me because it was almost like seeing him in a younger part of his life, like a prequel in a, in a sense, seeing him sort of become the Spock that we would, we would know. And um, I just was really attached to the characters and to that concept that the the episode puts forward of that sort of illusion, that illusion, and um, that is given to by benevolent aliens that are meaning well, and um, I it just really all clicked for me, and I I wanted to see more of those characters and their adventures, and that's what uh, really drew me to the cage. Well, and and thankfully with Strange New Worlds, I'm told that they're going back to the episodic nature. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I decided I was going to go ahead and write a spec script for it, because we know all the characters and they were trying, and the, the, the word on the street is, is that um, it's going to be episodic like the original series, but we'll see. But you, we will get to see more of those characters um, and uh, just with little different actors. Um, but so one of the things that's cool is, is that he did take this around to conventions. That's how he met the writers. And the word on the street was is that he that Roddenberry was personally taking this to science fiction conventions, showing the 16 millimeter and trying to get fans involved to help him get it on the air, right? Which is pretty smart thinking. And it shows, like you said, Jacob, that he was taking science fiction seriously. But one of the other cool things is he was getting um, Gene Kuhn and DC Fontana involved. And, um, you know, like, like you said, her episodes were so foundational. And, and, and one of the things that I learned was is that she was reading the slush pile from, from these scripts. And she was the one that she, she and Gene Kuhn were the ones who were editing every episode. Um, but this carries on with Star Trek all the way through the Berman era. Um, Brandon Braga told me in our interview that Brent, that Rick Berman um, did a pass on every script from Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. He said no episode got produced without Rick Berman taking a pass. And that shows you the continuity between, that was Gene Roddenberry, DC Fontana, and Gene Kuhn's role. And that's one of the reasons why I think season three is not as good because they weren't involved in season three. They were involved in the first two seasons. Yeah, I, I've warned HT about the um, about the pit that is season three for our eventual coverage of we'll have to power through certain sections of Star Trek season three. 
there oh, are some highlights, but it's it is kind of sad to watch. But um, so um, let's see on my notes. One of the things um, DC Fontana did, um, like I would just want to talk about her role in developing season two. She talked about in this interview that I sent you guys. It's really cool. She talks about how between season one and season two, she went and talked to all the actors before rewriting the series Bible and said um, that she wanted all the actors to tell them, you know, what they thought about their characters after having lived in them for a year. And she tells an interesting anecdote where she said something about um, talking to DeForest Kelly and mentioning something about, well, we're thinking about writing an episode about your son. And DeForest Kelly said, I don't think he has a son. I think he has a daughter. And this daughter uh, became the basis of a script called Joanna that um, was about McCoy's daughter that uh, ended up never getting produced in season three, but has become canon because there have become novels written about McCoy and his daughter, Joanna. And this all comes from a conversation where DC Fontana was trying to drill down on the characters. And I think that shows something. I wonder how you guys feel about how the characters develop over those two seasons. H, do you want to take this first? Oh yeah, I think that the actors' performances um, really lent itself to the characters and how they grew and how we became more affectionate of them. We've talked a lot on Trapping Through Time and Space of Leonard Nimoy's performance of Spock and how it was both something that was in the script and also kind of a miracle of a, of a character in that it was part the screenwriters part uh Leonard Nimoy say like putting his his um his own sort of effect on this character and I think that it's so interesting that Star Trek has often been the original series hasn't been like brushed off as being episodic but we see so much of these characters develop and grow at least in our affections and I feel like there is some of that growth that we see throughout the um the series and that allows the, the episodes to sometimes test their dynamics and their relationships and their own character. And um, it's just so, it's just so fantastic to see how these characters came about and how strong and rich and layered they are uh, owing to both the writers, but really to the performers who put their all into these characters. Yeah, I mean, this is from an era where TV is meant to be consumed, you know, on an episode by episode basis. I mean, famously, the, um, go back a few years, the, the networks had no interest in letting the fugitive have a have a series finale uh, until the producers literally begged the sponsors to fund a final episode where Richard Kimball finds a worn armed man, and it ended up being one of the most watched TV events of all time up to that point. Three quarters of American households watched the final episode of Fugitive because it was an ending. And Trek doesn't get that ending, uh, and it still follows a lot of the structure you see in shows like The Fugitive, where here's the adventure of the week. You can watch this one, skip the next two, and come right back, and you're you're fine. You jump right back into it. But what Trek does that a lot of those shows did not is that the the emotional continuity uh, evolves and changes, and you really start to see, especially the trio of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy evolve and their friendship change and their work relationship change and if you watch it from the beginning the emotional impact of something like a mock time 
really lands uh, when characters make their choices and there's a big reveal at the end about what has happened to certain characters. You can watch it on its own and enjoy it as an hour of TV. Uh, but whereas Trek feels like it has his eye on the future of what TV could be, is that letting its actors uh, maintain that episode by episode memory of the characters and their relationships, even when the episodes aren't directly calling out continuity, the characters on the screen have an unsaid continuity. And that is all due to the performances. Well, and a muck time was a big one for me when I was a kid for a character reason, because I always kind of believed that McCoy hated Spock and they hated each other. And the, the, the level to which Kirk and McCoy, to, you know, put themselves in danger to save Spock or to help Spock in a muck time when I was a kid, it was like, oh, yeah, the doctor, he, he really does love Spock, even though he's, he's grumpy towards him, you know, which, and oh, and prepare yourself, HT, when you get back into the movies, you're just, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be great for you. Um, I wish I could see those with fresh eyes again. Um, but uh, yeah, and I think it's a woman's touch, honestly, with DC Fontana, because I think it's, you know, I don't imagine that Lost in Space, that the producers went around and said, uh, and talked to the different actors playing the Robinsons and said, tell me how you feel about this character right now, <laughs> you know? Um, maybe they did. I, I just, I don't see it in evidence in Lost in Space that there, that that, that was happening, right? Or for example, like if take another show from the era, The Man from Uncle. I don't think anyone was wondering what was happening with Napoleon Solo's like psyche or how he was feeling as a character, um, you know, from one week to another. But, you know, I think that was DC Fontana, you know? And, uh, and it's clearly evidence in, in, in the show that we got. So, um, yeah, we should have supported the show on our show, and we'll say it again here just the unsung hero. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think Trek exists uh, beyond these couple of years without her stabilizing hand. You know, it's, it's the Walt Disney versus Roy Disney thing uh, with Walt, Walt Disney and Gene Roddenberry are just the guys who are shotgun blasting ideas everywhere, but you need a Roy Disney or DC Fontana to say, okay, all right, here's all the ideas. Let's actually focus this and make it work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do. I do want to point out that in the '90s, she did a novel. Uh, she wrote a Star Trek novel called Vulcan's Glory that is about Spock's first day on uh, first um, mission on the Enterprise. And uh, so, and it's very good. Um, I mean, I haven't read it since it came out in the '90s, but I remember it being very good. Well, I need for you to do, David, is send me a list of Star Trek books we need to eventually read for the podcast because I've I've never delved into a lot of them. If there are certain classics, like, like email me 10 classics for, for a future episode well, of Trek did, Time Space. I did do an episode of this podcast on what I consider to be the Citizen Kane of Star Trek novels. And the interesting thing about this novel, it's um, it's called Federation and it's a crossover and it's a sequel to a season three episode or maybe season two, it's season two, Metamorphosis, um, that ties into The Next Generation. And this book was knocked out of canon by Star Trek First Contact because it contradicts First Contact. But anyone who's read it will tell you that it, that, and I told Brandon Bragg of this personally, <laughs> I said, no offense, because I love First Contact and I know you've read it. <laughs> But Star Trek Federation is by 
far the best Star Trek novel. And it's the only one that I've read three times. And um, this last time that I read it for the podcast, um, and we did a whole episode breaking down that, uh, there, there were moments where I got misty eyed um, and I had read it twice before. So that one is up there, um, but yes, I will do that. Um, and I did do an interview with John Ordover, who was the Star Trek editor in the 90s, because that was when, when I was in college in the 90s, the only fiction I read, because I was reading so much nonfiction for college, was I read 100 Star Trek novels over like the time I was in school. <laughs> and he was the editor. And so it's a total nerd freak out for me to interview John because Star Trek books were such a big deal for me then. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talking a lot. Um, <laughs> but um, I wanna get you guys' feed, your feedback, yay or nay, on one of the cool things I found on Memory Alpha um, which is the Wikipedia for Star Trek, as I'm sure Jacob used. I, you've got to be using Memory Alpha for these episodes. Because Look, I have memories of binge-watching Deep Space Nine in college on DVD, and my ritual was, when episode was over, I'd hit pause in the DVD, open Memory Alpha, read the entire Memory Alpha entry on the episode of Deep Space Nine, and move on. So yes, I, I'm intimately familiar <laughs> with Memory Alpha. To this day, it's still my go-to resource for planning episodes of our show. So when I did this episode, I did an episode of this podcast about the what the lessons that modern Star Trek needed to learn from the Twilight Zone, which was hire science fiction writers. It's selfishly me saying, hey, I'm a science fiction writer, you should hire me. <laughs> but um, at the same time, I'm making the valid argument that this is a, the core of what made Twilight Zone work and Star Trek. And it's the reason why I think the new Twilight Zone is not good. They hired TV writers comedy TV writers that were friends of Jordan Peele's to write for the show. And they're not basing it on actual like science fiction, bizarro and horror literature, which is what made the sixties and eighties Twilight Zone so good. Cause remember the eighties Twilight Zone was show run by Harlan Ellison. So, and adapted Robert McCammon, George RR Martin was a writer on it. And so these are serious genre writers and that's what they're missing on the new Twilight Zone. And I think to a degree with the new Star Trek, they could benefit from, from hiring science fiction writers. But anyways, when I was researching that, I found a page on Memory Alpha of the unproduced original series episodes <laughs> and the treatments, and it's glorious. And what I want to do is I would like to go through them and get your, your thoughts, yay or nay, on whether you think this should have been an episode of Star Trek. And I'm going to start first with there was an attempt to write a third mud episode and it was called Deep Mud. There are little details except for that the script was written and that the actor who played Harry Mud was not available. So they didn't do it. For some reason, there's not a lot of details. Do you think there needed to be a third Harry Mud episode? HT's only seen the first Harry Mud episode so far as of this recording. I am not a fan of Mud's women, but I am a fan of Harry Mud. So it's a, I even like the new Harry Mudd from Discovery. I think, I think they actually do a really good job updating him. So I am, I am pro more Harry Mudd and more Harcourt Fenton Mudd. Uh, yeah, so we are about to, we are soon going to record our, our episode about the next Harry Mudd episode. And so my impression of him so far is from Mudd's Women, which is not mm -hmm. a great impression. Although I found him as a character 
hilarious and I can see why he would return but I I need to see you know him out of context of a better in the context of a better episode than Mud's Woman. Okay now to the next this one is something else folks. Norman Spinrad was given the assignment by Gene L. Kuhn to write an episode called He Walked Among Us and the producers asked Gene Kuhn to come up with a vehicle for a certain actor who really wanted to be on Star Trek. This was Milton Berle, who wanted to be on Star Trek. Wrap your head around that. Now, are we thinking of the Star Wars holiday special? Because that's what made, it made me think of. And this episode was about a tribal village where a man shows up and is suddenly um, uh, a guy who's a, a junk trader who is suddenly seen as a god. Obviously, that would be Milton Berle. Do we think this episode should have happened? No. This is, this is, I'm not opposed to Star Trek comedy episodes, but this sounds like a, uh, a disaster waiting to happen. Okay. I agree. That sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. Agreed. Um, do you have? Do you guys have a favorite um, Star Trek comedy episode while we're on it? Oh, um, I, I don't. I can't. I'm. I'm too early in my run so far to make a decision. So, Jacob, you go. This is this is maybe an obvious choice, uh, but by far the silliest episode of Star Trek I actively love is from Next Gen, which is Cupid, uh, which features all of Next Gen cast thrown into a recreation of Sherwood Forest. And it's incredibly stupid. I find it very, very funny. That's my favorite comedy episode of Star Trek. Uh, my favorite comedy episode of Star Trek would be Little Green Men from Deep Space Nine, which is... Uh, that one is very good. That is, a, that is a very good one. And also features a cameo by the woman that would go on to play Frank Black's wife on uh, Millennium. Oh. Which is a uh, uh, deep nerd dive. But Millennium is one of my... All that first season of Millennium is one of my favorite seasons of TV. So it's one of my blind spots, David. I'll have to, maybe it's time for me to check that out. Yeah, I think so. Um, so Norman Spinrad did eventually um, use the title He Walked Among Us for a novel he wrote in 2002, which has somewhat similar of a concept. Um, mining that many years later. Um, and uh, so let me talk for a little bit here before I go further on this. Some of the writers that he did approach for this to do these outlines include, um, well, actually, no, I'll get into it when we get to each of them. So DC Fontana was given a very unfortunate job for a script that she eventually told Gene, just don't do this one. <laughs> <laughs> and it was called Hitler's Father. Oh, wow. And where a temporal experiment resulted in a 19th century man um, being accidentally beamed aboard the Enterprise, and they find out that his son would eventually be Adolf Hitler. And then the question was, do you return him to his time or not? Um, that's a that's a real Doctor Who premise right there. That's not yeah, Star Trek. Episode, I'm so. gonna say there is an episode of Doctor Who called "Let's Kill Hitler." Oh. Right. <laughs> Spoilers I far ahead. <laughs> so I'm going to say nay on that one. Yeah, I would say it's it sounds more Doctor Who-y than Star Trek, but yeah, I, I don't really know. I, I feel like that's a it seems a little out of the the realm of of Trek. I don't I don't think 
1960 Star Trek was equipped to handle the Holocaust. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the show, but it's, it's not there yet. Right. The next one was a DC Fontana script called Joanna, which I mentioned briefly. Um, and this episode was to feature Joanna McCoy, daughter of Dr. McCoy. And the outline was submitted during season three, 1968. And it was heavily rewritten into The Way to Eden, which we cannot spoil for HT because it is considered absolutely one of the worst episodes of Star Trek. Oh, no. And it's literally the reason why DC Fontana did not return because she was so upset with how it turned out. But the original story was to feature Joanna coming aboard with a group of hippies um, aboard the Enterprise and having a romantic fling with Kirk causing major conflict between Dr. McCoy and Kirk. Is it is it that's Kirk? No, you don't betray your butt. Oh, no, oh, yes. no, no, I'm gonna say no. Yeah, that's the worst. No, I, no, also, I, I feel I brought this up several times on checking through time and space. Uh, is Star Trek anti hippie? Um, well, I think your answer is yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more complex than that. Uh, we, we've discussed this in a future episode. I think Star Trek is anti-complacency, which occasionally, would, which occasionally, you know, you, you could tie to the hippie movement, perhaps you know, inaccurately. But yes, the uh, Star Trek's big hippie episode HD is on the horizon. Yes. <laughs> Um, this one, I'm not going to talk about the plot because it was turned into something, but uh, The Joy Machine, written by Theodore Sturgeon, was uh, eventually adapted by science fiction um, professor and author James Gunn into a Star Trek novel in the 90s, Oh, and, um, which is cool. Um, and I talked to John J. Ordover in my interview with him about this process. And what it was is that um, this is one of the few scripts that actually got finished from these treatments and because it was finished and Theodore Sturgeon is a famous science fiction writer uh famous for he has a, a genius novel called um uh um brain parting the title blood of you um and he was an excellent science fiction writer um wrote one of the first transgender excellent takes of science fiction in, in uh, venus plus x um, uh, just a genius science fiction writer. So the fact that there was a Theodore Sturgeon script floating out there, um, they wanted to get it made. Um, so what do you guys think of Theodore Sturgeon's one entry into the, into with the monk time? You guys haven't done that one yet, but uh, th that's a classic episode. And I think his, his, um, addition to Star Trek is, is monumental just in that, right? Yeah, we also seen in his episode of Shore Leaf, which is not nearly as strong as a Muck Time. Uh, but yeah, I think a Muck Time is very it's such a vital uh hour of television for, for, for Trek. And I'll be honest, I haven't I haven't read a lot of Sturgeon's work. Uh, you know, you can fill me in on this David, how well the Trek episodes reflect, you know, his short stories and his novels. Oh, they're not um, nearly as good as how genius his novels were. He was he was a truly fantastic science fiction writer of the era. Venus Plus X is a um, it was nominated for the Hugo, but lost to, to a Canical for Leibowitz, which is one of the greatest science fiction novels of all time. So, you know. Yeah, uh, more times great. Uh, Shore leave, not as great. That's, that's my Star Trek opinion on Sturgeon. How about you, HD? Well, spoilers, we did. We have gotten to a muck time in our uh, 
future recordings of episodes. And I, spoilers, I was a fan. I'm not as much a fan of Shore Leave, uh, but Amok Time centered around one of my favorite characters, my favorite character. So I didn't have anything to complain about with that. And it's just, uh, I'm, I would be interested to see more of his work um, if he were to go more into Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Joy Machine is good as as a novel, and um, I remember enjoying it. I read it when it came out, but um, but you sh- you would be interested to know, um, HT, that um, DC Fontana got her gig writing for Star Trek because she was the first to kind of crack the nut of how Spock could have a love story without emotion. Um, in and her, I believe it was her. This side of paradise was, was her rewrite of that episode, um, which was the one that really impressed the two genes. Um, which was how you how you get more work on Star Trek at that era. Um, so the next one are two concepts from a science fiction writer named A. E. Von Vogt. Um, and if you're not familiar with A. E. Von Vogt. He was one of the most popular science fiction writers of the 1940s um, and had written a uh, classic science fiction novel called The World of Null A, which is considered by many to be the greatest science fiction novel of the 1940s. It is very hard to read. We did an episode of it recently on Dickheads because it was Philip K. Dick's favorite science fiction novel when he was a kid. Um, and is the biggest, he pretty much ripped it off for his first novel, Solar Lottery. Um, sorry to, to PKD tangent there for a minute, but A.E. Von Vogt was the writer that a lot of the Star Trek um, writers grew up reading in pulp magazines when they were kids. So they were very excited to have A.E. Von Vogt um, pitch episodes. They never made any of his ideas. <laughs> But he wrote four treatments, including one called Machines Are Better. And this one, the Enterprise discovers a um, desolated planet with two survivors, a pair of androids named number one and number two, who are apparently in a feud with each other. This is considered to be where they got the concept for um, Be This Our Last Battlefield in season three. But of course, without the androids, um, just the idea of the destroyed world with the two people fighting. Um, and uh, this one has the robots taking over the Enterprise and taking them faster than warp 10, which is also a concept that Braun and Braga used in Star Trek Voyager. Um, uh, rather infamously, <laughs> think of Threshold, right? Yes, and I did ask, you should know, I asked him about writing Threshold and he um, said, well, you can't make them all good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he's self-aware on that one. <laughs> he even admitted that it's up there with Spock's brain. Um, and uh, yeah, you should see his comments on it because it, it was kind of fun um, um, talking about that one with him. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, uh, there's no shame in his game there. Um, but uh, what do you think about Machines Are Better by A.E. Von Vogt? Should that have been an episode? Sure. I mean, yeah, I think that yeah. one sounds actually pretty good. That sounds intriguing. I'm a big fan of just Android-centered storytelling in general. So, yeah. All right. The next A.E. Von Vogt story was called Miss Gulliver, which is about a woman who has grown to gigantic proportions 
uh, in an accident related to an unsuccessful attempt to regrow limbs. In the episode's conclusion, her lover underwent the same experiment to be with her forever as a massive person. Oh. Hey, yeah, this was a big thumbs down for me. I, I can't approve this one. Producer Robert Justman said, quote, this bears a striking resemblance to our episode, Who Mourns for Adonis, namely that it has someone who grows larger and larger. After that, it bears no resemblance to anything that anyone could depict on film. <laughs> yeah, I, my thought is, um, I don't think they could have pulled it off on that on the 60s budget that they had. Yes. Um, and so, and the last of the A.E. Von Vogt ideas was Search for Eternity. In the story, the Enterprise crew awakens to find themselves unable to remember the past few hours. It turns out that during this time, Kirk apparently ordered the destruction of a populated planet whose inhabitants now blame him with genocide. The recordings of the destruction and a missing photon torpedo are the MacGuffin. I say yay to that idea. That one sounds Yeah, that's an intriguing setup. I'm already like, I want to know more. Look, uh, amnesia on the bridge is one of my favorite next-gen tropes. Uh, so uh, I know HD is, is, is familiar with Kirk Breaks Computers. She's familiar with the godlike alien. She has not quite encountered amnesia on the bridge yet, but yeah, I'm a big fan of, of amnesia on the bridge. So I'm sort of gives a thumbs up for me. All right. Yeah, that one sounds great. In fact, I wish they would turn that into a Strange New Worlds episode. That would be a great Anson Mount uh, vehicle. Uh, so the next the next writer is uh, Philip Jose Farmer, who is most famous in science fiction circles for being the first science fiction writer to use sex in a story. Um, uh, in the early 50s, he had a science fiction novel called The Lovers that like universally kind of broke the sex barrier in, um, in science fiction. Um, he also wrote a great alternate Earth novel called Two Hawks from Earth. He's a great science fiction writer. And he wrote one where the Enterprise rescues a woman from a wrecked ship who falls in love with Kirk, of course. And lovesick over his refusal of her, she arms herself with a phaser and takes over engineering, sending the ship hurtling beyond unseen speeds, uh, causing the Enterprise to break through into a space void and get trapped inside. Yay or nay? Hmm. I don't much care for the setup but i like the idea of a space void of being trapped in a space void so yay with a rewrite yeah yeah with a bit of a rewrite yay i'd order the draft i'd want to see the draft okay um phil jose farmer's next was called rebels unthawed which was decided they decided was too much like a space seed which was about a bunch of unthawed suspended animated um Southern rebel soldiers from the Confederacy. No, no, thank you. Nay. No, thank you to all of that. <laughs> I, 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 I don't need Captain Kirk wondering if she if, if she'd be sympathetic towards Southern rebels from the Confederacy. Well, we'll we'll, we'll come back to similar storyline here later. Uh, Sketches among the ruins of my mind by Philip Jose Farmer. A alien satellite enters Earth orbit and wipes everyone's memory from the last four days. And um, so he has, the Enterprise has to come back to Earth to solve this mystery. Um, Roddenberry really liked the script, but decided that they didn't that they were going back to Earth too much because they had just done the Gary Seven episode, 
And so they did not do this one. I still think this is a somewhat decent concept. So I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah I up. say yay. Okay. So this one, I don't know the writer at all, but um, uh, somebody named Barry Trivers, and he wrote one called a uh, uh, treatment called Portrait in Black and White. Based on Gene Roddenberry's story concept from the original outline, the story is about a parallel development planet with the old plantation days are occurring with reversed roles of blacks and whites with the white savages being shipped off and sold on slave markets operated by black traders. Nay. This is the biggest nay so far. This is, there is, I don't even know where to begin, HT. Nay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, it should be noted that DeForest Kelly was a huge fan of this script, which he said had the potential to give Nichelle Nichols her greatest moments. And he said, and I quote, something where the two of us were thrown onto a planet where a great racial problem is reversed. The fact that I'm a Southerner and she was black, we were very excited about this script and sad that it never happened, says DeForest Kelly. So just putting that out there. I, I would like to hear Nichelle Nichols's thoughts on this <laughs> rather than hear them filtered through DeForest Kelly. God bless his soul. Great, terrific actor. By all accounts, a good person. Yeah. But this sounds like a giant bucket of problems that I don't think anybody's prepared to deal with. Isn't this the premise of that uh, DB uh, Benioff and Weiss HBO show, Confederacy? Uh, not quite. Like that, this one, like that, that was an alternate history where Confederacy kept on going instead of swapping right, right. out and saying, like, I don't know, I, I, this is not the time or place for me to get into the, the racial nitty gritty of why this makes my skin crawl. Yeah. Yes, it does. But I did think it was interesting to hear DeForest Kelly's comments on it. Um, that I've only got a few left here, but they're, they're, they're getting super fun now. Um, the Rights of Fertility by Robert Sheckley. Robert Sheckley was one of the most gonzo, bizarro science fiction writers of the 60s and 70s. And the fact that he wrote an outline for Star Trek immediately made me laugh when I saw his name there because he is so weird. And his episode, Rights of Fertility, was about a red shirt getting an infection that turns him into a vegetable, like an actual vegetable matter. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Spock has to go to a planet to try and get a cure where tree-worshiping natives turn him into a god in the B story. This, how this didn't happen, we know because it is really weird. Uh, I'll take it though. I, I, you know what? Um, give me a time machine, send me back in time, say yes to this. And I would say yes to this because I would like to see, <laughs> this sounds like a, a, a backdoor setup for the thing from the other world, which was, you know, mm -hmm. inspiration for the thing. And people forget that in the film that inspired the thing, the, the alien is essentially a big walking carrot. So, you know what? I'm all for science fiction about sentient vegetables. Let's do it. Let's, all, all, let's do it. Why, why, why the heck not? Okay, in the best title category from George Clayton Johnson uh, in a rejected uh, outline, Rockabye Baby or Die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dated August 2nd, 1966, concerning a newborn interstellar entity that comes to life, aging and dying within the Enterprise's computer and circuitry. And yes, Jacob, you recognize that story as an episode of The Next Generation. Um, but yes, this was originally George Clayton Johnson's Rockabye Baby or Die. 
I wish they had yeah. done this one. I'm going to say yay. Yeah, that sounds so weird and high concept. I'm down. Yay. Yeah. I say yay, even though, as David just pointed out, it also did kind of sort of get made anyway. But yeah, let's do it, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gene Roddenberry plans to do an episode that has infamously been talked about by Leonard Nimoy because Leonard Nimoy was asked why Spock was limping on the set of the cage at certain times. And he limped on the set of the cage because Gene Roddenberry had a concept for an episode that he only referred to as Spock's leg, <laughs> where apparently there was going to be an episode where Spock injured one of his legs and we never got Spock's leg. We know nothing more about it, but I'm all for an episode about Spock's leg because Spock's brain turned out so terribly. Maybe the leg better. HG has not seen Spock's brain yet, and probably a good thing she has not seen Spock's brain yet. Uh, but I would like an episode for every piece of Spock's body, you know, uh, Spock's arm, uh, Spock's clavicle, Spock's little toe. So yeah, I'll, I'll well, say yes. I'm down for more Spock. I'm intrigued about Spock's brain now that you guys have mentioned it about two three times so far and i both in in terrible reference so i just more spock even if it's awful okay so the writer of dagger of the mind uh i can't remember his first name is winselberg was his last name uh shyman according to the page on the internet i have open okay he was so upset with the rewrite of dagger of the mind apparently that roddenberry offered offered to give him a job rewriting the episode Galileo 7, but also said he would take another pitch from him. This pitch was called The Squaw. <sighs> okay, the story featured a lost colony of humans who based their society on tropes from third-rate pulp Western novels left down by their ancestors. The planet is also inhabited by lost Vulcans who live in a pri primitive tribal state um, and fight against the humans. Um, this one is a big nay for me because the I, I they did do the concept of the book left behind by very not wise people who used it to rebuild their society um, later with the Nazis, but this one is also a big nay for me. Yeah, I feel like there are other episodes that take this basic concept and do it well so like it's hard for me to say a complete no but the title of the episode the squaw implies a certain level of native american representation that i don't trust 60s television to have pulled off in a way that would have aged gracefully yeah this sounds like a very problematic at, at the least episode so i'm gonna go with may yeah, we are not going to tell the doctor to turn on the TARDIS and go back for this one. Nope. <laughs> um, but for our last one, we may, um, which was a story developed by someone who would go on to write uh, his own series of science fiction novels that got made into a bad 90s TV show. But he also wrote several Star Trek novels. He also directed what is arguably the worst Star Trek film of all, and that would be one William Shatner. Um, who submitted a outline for an undeveloped story called The Web of Death, which was where the Enterprise discovers its sister ship um, missing near the planet Earth 3, trapped in a cocoon of a giant insect. 
The creature also begins to cover the Enterprise in the same white substance without much means of escape. Finally, Kirk and crew manage to distract the creature by attacking the dead ship to res um, while rescuing its crew and themselves. Um, Shatner wrote outlines for episodes, apparently. Um, and Gene Roddenberry actually liked this one, and this one was in develop and of development. I mean, of course, bits and pieces were turned into an episode of season three, which is one of the few highlights of season three, uh, the Tholian web. Uh, I'm going to say, yay. I think that actually sounds like a good, good episode. Yeah, it sounds intriguing. So I'm going to yay too. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Although, not to get, set us on too much of a, of a tangent, but briefly, David, you think Final Frontier is worse than Nemesis? Uh, slightly, yes. Okay. Because at least Nemesis looks good. <laughs> okay. Whereas the Final Frontier, the special effects are so bad and everything, it's just so bad. Okay. But Nemesis is hard for me to watch as well. and But Nemesis does have the ramming speed scene, which makes up for a lot. Um, and also the seeds that it planted for, for Picard almost, you know, make up for how terrible of a movie it is. But yes. Um, fair, 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 fair. Yes. So um, on that note, we're done with the unproduced episode. So we can kind of, which was, was the thing I was really excited to do with you guys because I wanted to get your opinions on <laughs> where it could have gone, <laughs> right? So um, on that note, so just to kind of tie things up a little bit, this era and this kind of creativity, like this, this is a special time for Star Trek because, um, you know, obviously Jacob and I have had a lot of fun with the franchise years later. And, you know, he and I could probably nerd out um, endlessly on Deep Space Nine or this movie or that movie. But for just the idea that they were creating this out of nothing is so exciting to watch. Um, what are your favorite moments of, of season one, starting with HT? Well, I love the naked time and seeing Spock, uh, his walls break down and his emotions show through for the first time. And I loved to see that the growth of the dynamic between Spock, Kirk, and uh, Bones, Dr. McCoy, and seeing that friendship become that central um, appeal of the show and the heart of the show, the beating heart, and um, how they, even with the, some of the weakest episodes, will remain consistent. And the characters, I just grew on me so quickly. I was, I mean, you listen to the, to the podcast, I was immediately enamored with Spock but I was uh surprised by how much I just was able to love all the other uh crew members of the Enterprise and um I think there's a what I, oh, I'm, I'm gonna have trouble with like delineating, delineating between season one and two because we kind of have been going pretty steadily on but um Naked Time really uh remember was a memorable one for me uh as was the city on the edge of forever which will get to at some point city of the edge forever season one correct yes it was yeah oh my god that was like transcendent sci-fi storytelling and seeing star trek do that in a in a genre that it hadn't really played with before was so exciting and new and it, breaking out of its formula while making breaking new ground with its formula is just a, such an exciting thing to see um jacob for you what are, what are the moments from season one especially on this rewatch that that surprised you after 
how many years had it been since you had gone through and watched the original series? For a total rewatch, it's been years and years and years. Uh, certain episodes I have, you know, revisited you know, on occasion, you know, here and there because I like them. But uh, it's probably been well over a decade since I watched original series front to back like this. And moments that stand out, uh, I'll. I'll, I'll spare you from saying every moment in the city edge of forever because episode is legitimately a masterpiece. But I do think that uh, the devil in the dark, uh, when Spock mind melds with the Vorta and Lerny Moy is tasked with playing not only Spock, but this alien creature. And the episode asks you to buy this alien special effect. It's actually not particularly impressive special effect, but asking you to understand, uh, understand it and appreciate it as a complex character is this miracle of of science fiction storytelling where it transcends any low budget or any weak effect through power of performance and writing. Uh, I think the idea of of giving voice to an utterly inhuman alien and allowing it to uh, share that empathic weight is Star Trek in a nutshell. Uh, my other one I'll probably pick looking over a list of episodes and trying to narrow it down is the conclusion of Errand of Mercy, an episode that HG and I had probably one of my favorite conversations of all about because it is the final conclusion of that episode where the quote-unquote third world planet rejects both the Federation and the Klingons and says, maybe you intervening at all in the affairs of us is a bad idea, which to say that at the height of the Vietnam War in the 60s on American television show is such a bold brave thing to announce uh and for kirk to realize yeah um i was wrong is that's, that's my favorite thing about kirk hg i talk about this on the show all the time which is kirk's at his best when kirk struggles and when he's wrong and we learn the lesson because kirk as superman is boring kirk is human with the capacity for change is is god tier kirk <laughs> and some of his best moments in the movies come from from his most painful moments um and uh you have that to look forward to ht for me i'm gonna say um my favorite episode and uh it's the one that i constantly come back to and i i'm actually intending to do a whole episode breaking down all all the elements that make it genius which is um balance of terror um the reason why i love balance of terror so much just specifically one thing i would like to see star trek do more often today and it's one of the things that I put energy in my spec script towards is um, reminding people that they are actually a spaceship, that they are in space. And no episode of Star Trek does a better job of that to me than Balance of Terror because uh, there's a couple things. One, which is you see actual crew members doing jobs in the lower decks of the ship. Um, you see a marriage that doesn't quite happen. Um, you see there's there's actually a scene where they just show random people pushing buttons down, you know, down in the bottom. Um, and it actually takes them time from when they get the distress call and when they get there, they can't respond right away. It's not instantaneous. Um, the map of space is up on the screen and there's the whole storyline with the prejudice of the character Styles, who we never saw again. <laughs> um, but this idea that you know, there might be traitors among us. And um, Kirk actually tells him to take, it. there's no room for prejudice on this bridge. Word for word, he says it. So on top of the science fictional elements, you have the, you have a subtle moment where the politics comes through as well. 
And I think it has everything that I want in Star Trek because one of the things that I would just love to see more, and Discovery did a little of this in the beginning where like there's actual awareness of the fact that they're in space, you know, and reminders. Um, I think it's one of the things from the Berman era that I don't like is that sometimes I think that there's absolutely no awareness that they're in space at, at times and you can forget that because their technology is so good or whatever. But that's why I love Balance of Terror. And I think Balance of Terror is a moment where the whole episode, it's a submarine episode, I get it. It's a submarine movie condensed on Star Trek, but it, it's so great. And the little elements of the Romulans, of course, are still playing out on Picard and, and Discovery and that all came from that episode and the um, sad ac accidental double casting of Mark Leonard <laughs> um, playing the Romulan, which he said the Romulan commander was his one of his favorite roles he ever played. She does not know his uh, second role yet, so I'm curious to see how she reacts to that. Ooh, I mean, I really loved him in Balance of Terror, and I think that he he had such an impact in that role of the Romulan commander, the nameless Romulan commander. I was like, who is, what is his name? I felt bad for not knowing it, but he didn't, he wasn't given a name. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Balance of Terror, a great episode. Yeah, yeah. And I know this is the episode that I get to hear next of your, um, your episode, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, Balance of Terror is absolutely my favorite. And, um, but yeah, and so, yeah, I really appreciate getting you guys' take on this because I'm really having fun with the, with the podcast. Uh, the last thing that I would say is doing both together, Doctor Who and Star Trek. Like, and I know it sounds like you've already done the Impossible Planet, which Impossible Planet was the episode that sold me on Doctor Who because I started with, like you did, Jacob, with the modern, with, with Rose and that's how that's how I started Doctor Who. And the Impossible Planet was the one I liked the first season, but Impossible Planet was the one where I was like, all right, I'm in. I'm a Whovian. Here, here we go. Um, you know, I love the first season, but what what's it like for you discovering these at the same, you know, well, while your friend is doing it at the same time with the other show? It's, it's gotta be an interesting experience for you too, Jacob. It's really rewarding and strange because I realize now that if I watched this show a decade ago, I would have loved it. I would have been through all of it. And at this point, I'd be watching new episodes and having things to complain about about new stuff. Like um, that's what we do is we, we, we complain about the things we love. Um, uh, but watching it now and watching about two episodes a week, which is, which is our recording schedule, and not allowing myself to binge ahead is such a exercise in reminding myself that growing up with Star Trek, I fell in love with it because it wasn't just something I binge watched on a weekend. It was something that I lived with and lived with me and letting myself live with Doctor Who and relive with Star Trek reminds me that uh, the, the staying power of both shows is that it sits with you week to week and you allow yourself to you'll have to grow within you, grow within your heart, grow within your head, and to start to fill in the gaps of your imagination. What what comes next? And not being able to hit play immediately on the next episode was frustrating, but also amazing. So that's, that's how it feels right now. I'm anti-binge watching now. I've actually made the declaration for myself that I don't binge watch anymore because I uh, like how stories unfold over time. And some of my friends are like, you know, like with the boys, they're like, you haven't finished this, the new season? No, no, I'm taking my time. Uh, I want to appreciate these things. 
Well, I really appreciate you guys coming on my show because I had fun and it's just cool for me to um, reach out to people whose podcast I've been listening to for a long time. Um, not just your Star Trek Who podcast, um, but uh, you know your your work on Slash Film. I just, I just really appreciate everything you guys do. So um, as far as uh, your commentary on movies, uh, especially you know, uh, no offense, HT, but Jacob and Chris have the eventually have the closest to my taste. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> everyone has you know their very specific tastes uh on slash film which i think is what makes us such a a fun team to get recommendations from and to follow everybody's favorites are always chris or ht and then somebody else so <laughs> no, no, no. i appreciate you too jacob but you know um because you know i'm also a big kung fu movie dork so like you know um you know what sometimes when you guys talk about asian films and like and i know like HT, like um, you've kind of forced me to, I've never been an anime fan, but like every once in a while now, you'll mention a movie and I'm like, oh, I, I just, I gotta do that. I gotta do that. I gotta, I gotta go watch more anime because because I'm into the wuxia and, and that stuff, so. Yeah, I mean, um, separate from me, Jacob got into anime. So that wasn't even my doing. Yeah, I, I've dipped my toe in. Uh, you know, I've I've done the uh, Evangelion. You know, um, I I have the Blu-ray set of Cowboy Bebop. My whole thing about anime is that bad anime is so prevalently thrust forward. But saying anime is bad is like saying American movies are bad. It's right. it's just it's an entire world. Uh, it's like it's like saying like you know science fiction is bad. No, it's it's just mm -hmm. an entire. You 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 gotta understand like there's different flavor for everybody. There's the the pervy nonsense that people make fun of, and there's also you know the david lynchian science fiction insanity of evangelion which i think ranks among the best thing things i've ever encountered in any kind of pop culture and you guys so. are the reason i watched it so um i i will say uh um that i watched that last year and i wouldn't have watched it if i hadn't heard you guys talk about it on the podcast but i was like okay i, got, I gotta watch this and it was delightfully weird and i loved it um oh, hg is your chance to really quickly plug a anime that for, for doctor who and or star trek fans <laughs> you should do this while you have the chance an anime for doctor who and star trek fans yeah. oh no i can't think of any off the top of my head i mean cowboy bebop yeah probably All right, so last question for each of you um i would like to know what it is now that you're a season and a half deep but what is the thing that has made you most happy about your podcast partner discovering the first seasons? For example, like, what is it, Jacob, that has just been the most heartwarming about watching HT discover Star Trek? And HT, what's been the most awesome watching Jacob discover Doctor Who? Starting with Jacob. I This, this is maybe not the, the most concise answer, but it's the fact that HT has enjoyed Star Trek without ca caveats. I thought for sure it would be every episode would be constant apologies, constant references to oh time and place, time and place. We we do do that. It's important to talk about when something is dated, when something is incorrect, when something is a product of its time. But HG has enjoyed Star Trek on its own level, and uh, without the need to um, put asterisks next to it constantly. So that's been the most watching her enjoy Star Trek without the need to apologize for it, or for me to need to apologize on its behalf. Uh, it's made me realize that this show is this, this show is, uh, still has all that same vital energy 
you know it's, it's still the same show it was 50 years ago in, in ways that actually matter and there are even episodes that I enjoyed more, even though you apologized. Like Miri, <laughs> for example, I was like, I still like it, even though there were elements that I acknowledge were not great. But yes, I was uh, yeah. surprised. I was surprised you liked Miri. I, I, I have to admit. <laughs> I like a distorted Peter Pan fable. <laughs> and HD, how about Jacob discovering Doctor Who? Doctor Who is a show that I just knew in my bones Jacob would like, and seeing him watch every episode and be a little bit skeptical at first, but be basically in by the second episode was so validating and exciting for me. I'm just a person who enjoys watching people enjoy things and and things that I thought that they would enjoy. So when we got to, for example, The Impossible Planet and knowing Jacob's taste and knowing exactly what the Impossible Planet was, it was just an exciting conversation for me that I was just beaming about afterwards because it's something that like I felt like a show was so appealing to him and uh, sharing in something that I love with him was just exciting and, and really fun. Yeah, it's great. And I'm really enjoying the podcast. I think other people will too. So for, for my listeners who have maybe not checked it out, um, you know, uh, I know my focus here is the writing and the arc and the storytelling, but you guys do break that down and you do talk about the writing and the concepts of that here. And I think it's good lessons for writers too, because um, that's the kind of the service I want to try and provide with my podcast is to talk about Star Trek as storytelling and like, you know, what storytellers can learn from watching Star Trek and you guys do a great job with that and with Doctor Who. So, and if they're not Doctor Who fans, what a perfect way to start watching Doctor Who is to do it with you guys and to be patient and watch them one week at a time, um, which is tough, but do it. You'll be rewarded for it. Um, and thank you guys for joining me um, on Star Trek Story, Myth and Arcs. Can you give people like how they can find you online and we'll wrap things up. Yeah, you can find Trekking Through Time and Space on Twitter at Trekking Time Pod. We're on LibSync uh, at Trekking Through Time and Space Jacob, can you verify that? Uh, yeah, but you can also find us on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All the usual suspects. Uh, our LibSync link is available to you, but I would also recommend uh, check the podcast provider of your choice. We should be on it. Cool. And how can they find you guys on social media if they want to follow? Not just your Star Trek Doctor Who podcast, but if they want to follow your film criticism as well. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at htranbui. And I am unfortunately also on Twitter. Uh, I'm at, at Jacob S. Hall. Uh, don't follow me. You, you, you'll regret it. <laughs> I disagree. All right. Thanks for joining me, guys. And uh, live long and prosper.